0: Hey, I'm Tommy Chong, welcome to
1: High on Homegrown. Yes, yes, everybody, and welcome to High on Homegrown, the cannabis podcast from persysgrowing.com. In this week's interview, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Peter Grinspoon. Dr. Grinspoon has been on the show before, way back in the day, in some of the early episodes. And he comes back this time to talk about his new book, which is called Seeing Through the Smoke. Dr. Grinspoon is a real cool guy. You know, you might know him because he is Lester Grinspoon's son. And he has been involved with cannabis in some way for the majority of his life. But anyway, he is a doctor, an internist, and medical cannabis specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he is also an instructor at Harvard Medical School. So as you can tell with a resume like that, this guy knows what he's talking about. And it was a huge privilege to get him on the show again and talk to him about his new book. Anyway, I'll leave you to the interview. Make sure you roll a fat one, get super high and enjoy this interview with Dr. Peter Grinspoon. And I'll speak to you at the end of this. See you in a bit. gonna be an echo, echo. <laughs> <laughs> zoom started rapping then did you get it? <laughs> that was pretty cool yeah so that was cool yeah well good uh, doctor uh you remember who we are right i'm mackie from the uk monkey do you want to quickly say hello hey dr grinspoon monkey down here in the southeast us along the gulf of mexico how's it going today
2: oh, it's going good it's actually a very pretty day in boston we're not too nice. hot not
1: nice so you have a new book congratulations on the new book thank you and this one's 100 percent about cannabis how long have you been working on the book has it been a couple of years now well i've definitely been working on
2: it for about four and a half years
1: whoa
2: um you know it's interesting i saw um some notes from a writing a, a writing group i was in from march of 2020 and it was like just a little bit done so i've been that was three and a half years i mean so definitely but you know i really feel like i've been working on it my whole life because i've been involved in this issue for my whole life for Mm -hmm. better for worse yeah like
1: a life's work yeah nice so uh seeing through the smoke is the title you chose right
2: yep and um so far so good you know it's you know ruffling some feathers getting some interest I, i i don't think a lot of the you know i do say that the doctors are on the wrong side of the war on drugs Mm -hmm. and stuff like that so you know i I definitely speak my mind
1: right have you suffered any stigma for it because it's only been out for about a week right it was released on 420
2: yeah it's been out for six days believe it or not
1: cool and any of your your doctors your friends at work read the book yet and have you had any feedback from those guys
2: yeah the ones who have read it absolutely love it but they tend to be the ones that agree with me that we shouldn't be persecuting cannabis users right so uh, right. we'll see when the uh, psychiatry the addiction psychiatrists read it we'll see if they have as mm-hmm. as
1: optimistic a response to it right do you think that they'll uh, differ with the response
2: well I basically said that the addiction psychiatrists they do take care of the people who are addicted to cannabis but they don't actually treat anybody with medical cannabis
3: right and okay.
2: they also really They only get exposed to the harms, not to the benefits. They're really have they've been against it all along.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, So I actually say that they shouldn't be the ones in charge of it. I think that the cannabis doctors and the doctors that see both sides, like the ways it can harm people and the ways it can help people, Mm -hmm. and who have experienced treating people with cannabis, are the ones who should be in charge of it. So I don't think they're going to love it because I sort of say they don't know very much about it and shouldn't be in charge of it anymore.
1: So is that field not changing? Because I think the last time we spoke, you you mentioned that when you was in medical school, they only taught about the endocannabinoid system for an afternoon throughout the whole course. And is that still the same thing now? People just not getting educated?
2: Yeah, slowly changing for the better. There's more education on both sides of the issues. I mean, it was really interesting. I spoke to um, about 250 psychiatrists uh, at a medical um, event about – a month ago, and the organizers even asked me. They said the psychiatrists only get negative. Can you talk about harms and benefits? So I was giving a very balanced talk about harms and benefits of cannabis. Right. And right. one of the one of the older psychiatrists couldn't contain himself. With ten minutes left in my presentation, he started, interrupted me, and started denouncing me.
1: <laughs> well, <What>? um, <it, laughs> just started I, heckling, yeah wow
2: yeah not even heckling like he took over everything you're saying is wrong none of this is true blah 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 and you know this you just nobody does this in a medical grand round wow right? yeah right. it's like bad form and then all the younger psychiatrists sort of said no we agree with you and we want you to keep going want to hear with uh, both sides of this issue so i think some of it's sort of like generational like
3: mm-hmm. the old
2: guard Versus like the younger doctors who are more like mentally nimble and open-minded mm-hmm. to hear both sides of an issue and to realize that it's a complicated issue; it's not uh, black and white.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and you say this doesn't happen very often in the medical community as well. He must have been uh, emotionally charged to be able to. Oh get my God! Involved yeah. like that.
2: It was really surprising, um, and you know, and they apologized and so forth. That the con- the conference uh, organizers, but it just goes to show that how. Um, strong opinions people have in this issue Mm -hmm. for better or for worse, like nobody's neutral about it. And, you know, that's (laughs) one of the concerns I I raised in my study. Whenever there's a a study about benefits, the people who are against it just think it it don't believe it. And whenever Mm -hmm. there's a study of harms, you know, Mm -hmm. because our, for example, the U S government has been exaggerating and lying about cannabis for so long. But if you use a, a medicine or a drug, whatever you consider it, of course, you should want to know about the harms, and a mm. lot of people who are in favor of cannabis just reject all of these studies, these mm-hmm. new studies that are more neutral, Yeah. Uh, and say, "Oh, this is just government, U.S. government propaganda." But you know, if you use alcohol, you want to know what the the harms are. You don't mm-hmm. want to you don't want to make an informed decision by knowing the good and the bad. So, like, Absolutely. I mean,
3: like,
2: I think all cannabis users should be interested in the harms. Mm-hmm. You know, just like people who smoke cigarettes, they might say you know, cannabis is obviously much safer than cigarettes, but they might say, well, maybe it does do this, but I still want to use it. But you should know about it. That's just making an informed decision.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. I like that, actually. Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
1: I mean, I said this the other day on one of the shows we were doing, uh, the truth might hurt, but it's always right. And it's always better to just seek and find the truth. And
2: Right, exactly. Well, that's a good way to put it. A similar way, Neil Tyson DeGrasse said, uh, you know, when he's talking about the the whole COVID, during COVID, when people oh, were like You designed, said COVID,
1: uh, sorry, doctor, we just got to uh, make sure oh, you that know. everybody smokes. Yep, you know? yep, yep. <laughs> COVID oh, is like yeah. a swear word on the show when you say it. And I've said it a couple of times there, everybody. So smoke, <laughs> smoke.
2: Smoke, nice. okay. He said science is true whether or not people believe it or not. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I like that way of putting it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We just need to get more studies done. I think that's uh, one of the bigger problems we've had in cannabis is just not enough studies.
2: Yeah. Well, more studies done and also neutral studies. Mm -hmm. Don't try to prove that it's good or bad. Just say, is it good or or bad in -hmm. this particular case? And let's objectively do a study. Let's not go into the study with our conclusion. Let's not have a conclusion until we do a study. I mean, that's what science is. Science isn't confirming your beliefs.
1: Science is discovering truth. So, I mean, we don't speak about harms very often on this show, but what would you say are some of the biggest harms, some of the biggest concerns as a doctor you see for people who are using cannabis?
2: Well, some people definitely get addicted to it. It's fewer Mm. than the psychiatrists say, fewer than the government says. Um, You know, they exaggerate it. Uh, The way they exaggerate it is that they define cannabis addiction very, very broadly, and they include tolerance and withdrawal. Just those two things. Can get you a, a definition of addicted to cannabis. And everybody who uses cannabis, like everybody who uses opiates or whatever, alcohol or antidepressants, has tolerance to withdrawal. And they don't often use that to diagnose addiction and other drugs, but mm-hmm. there's a double standard with cannabis where they use it, and that just ropes in all of the medical cannabis patients unnecessarily. Right, But it's overdiagnosed. But certainly some people, especially younger people, can get very addicted to cannabis because they learn that if you smoke it, you can alleviate your hunger, anger, boredom, distress. Mm -hmm. uh, And they don't learn how to soothe themselves or like take care of their emotional states without cannabis. So Mm -hmm. I've seen some people get addicted to it. Again, the rates have been exaggerated, but people, people can get addicted to it. And, and I also think that um, if someone has psychosis, like schizophrenia or bipolar, uh, cannabis really can destabilize some people, not everybody, but mm-hmm. but some. People. I've I've seen it happen. Um, I've seen it happen in people I'm close to. So, I just think that it's been exaggerated. Cannabis, like everything, it's been exaggerated, but there's often a kernel of truth. You know, they say cannabis causes schizophrenia. Like it doesn't cause schizophrenia. The rates of schizophrenia have been like one percent worldwide mm. the last seventy years. And the rates of cannabis use have gone up from, like, a couple hundred thousand people in the 1950s to, like, 400 million people now use cannabis. Yeah. And the rate of schizophrenia would have to go up if it, quote, unquote, caused schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And the rate is stable, but it certainly can destabilize people with schizophrenia. So, you know, the effects of people on psychosis are true, but they've been exaggerated. The effects of addiction are true but they've been exaggerated. And the final thing I'll say is that like, just like many other medications, we don't know if cannabis is safe during pregnancy or breastfeeding. And we should be very, very careful. You know, the reason we, we don't know is because it's unethical to test pregnant women. You can't give 10,000 of them high dose cannabis, 10,000 of them a placebo and say, let's see if your kid, your child has problems. That's not medically, that's, against medical ethics so mm-hmm. we have to live with uncertainty but I think people are a little bit casual about using it during pregnancy when you know you have to use something and ibuprofen isn't healthy either many of the medications we use aren't healthy so mm. I' like the the extra double standard the the extra focus on the harms of cannabis. Versus all of these other drugs, which are also potentially very harmful. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, we, we just don't know if it's safe during pregnancy or breastfeeding. So I tend to be very cautious about that. I mean, those are the main ones. Mm-hmm. Obviously, driving mm-hmm. if someone hasn't used it very much and then they use a very high dose, it's obviously not safe at all for them to be driving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like it's not safe to drive when you're drunk. But, you know. Um again there's a double standard on cannabis because driving drunk is worse than driving stoned.
3: Mm-hmm. But they
2: make a very big deal of that whenever the discussion of legalization comes up. So, you know, again, it's all there are harms. Like, why pretend there aren't harms? But it's important to not minimize or exaggerate them. And and again, nobody has a um monopoly on the truth. I just do my best effort in this book to get it mm-hmm. right.
0: Well, there's one thing that I've been seeing a lot lately in the media, and that's a a claim that this new high THC cannabis is causing higher rates of psychosis amongst its users. What do you think about that?
2: Well, I'm sort of, I generally am skeptical about that, except for under certain circumstances. Okay. They put on this like really silly study that was done, um, which I make fun of a lot in my book where like they, they blame um, a lot of the psychosis in Europe due to the fact that the cannabis confiscated by the police was greater than 10% in some cities and less than 10% in other cities. And they say that alone caused a difference between levels of psychosis. I mean, the studies are really silly. I mean, it's sort of like saying that, I mean, alcohol can cause psychosis. It's like saying port wine is more likely to cause psychosis than regular wine because it's twice as strong. I mean, alcohol is alcohol. I mean, unless you want to argue that you get high quicker with stronger pot, people usually titrate to their own level of comfort. I mean, people don't use more cannabis than they want to. They're just uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. They, people titrate to their own level of comfort. So that is a real strong argument against the idea that um, you know, stronger cannabis, people just use less of, unless you want to try to argue that because you smoke half a joint of 20% THC a little bit faster, then you'd smoke a full joint of 10% THC. Um, and that alone, the fact that you'd get the THC a little bit faster causes psychosis. That's a very hard argument to make. So mm-hmm. I think uh, they haven't made that argument at all. The only, the only exception is that, you know, there have always been concentrates. There's always been hashish. Mm-hmm. You know, has been like 30, 40% THC. It is definitely stronger than flour, certainly stronger than flour used to be. But now they do have these like pens. With like these super strong concentrates um, with like super high levels of THC, like 90%. You just wonder like the young people having these pens like stashed away in their pocket and like bombarding their brains with like these huge doses of THC. Mm. You do wonder what the effect of that's going to be. It's not the cannabis that we used to smoke when I was younger, which was like, you know, you take like four or five puffs, you'd be a little bit high. I mean, this -hmm. stuff now is really strong. So Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit concerned on the effect of like these super strong concentrates on young people, like maybe a 16 year old or an 18 year old. Mm -hmm. Is that gonna be a trigger for psychosis? So I think in that scenario, you could be a little bit worried, but generally they haven't made the argument that like stronger weed, you know, they talk about in the U S for example, Tapping THC at 10%. Now, all that would do is make it twice as expensive for medical patients
3: Mm. and
2: for people on fixed income, like veterans or the elderly, because people, again, will just smoke twice as much, which is worth for you if you're smoking it, ironically. But people titrate to their own level of medicinal benefit or sort of recreational comfort. People don't use more because it's stronger. Uh, So I I just don't think the stronger cannabis causes more psychosis arguments has been proven at all. I like that answer, actually.
0: That's that's pretty much the way I've been feeling about it the whole time, but I've heard it so many times, especially the politicians, people with not a whole lot of background, that just kind of parrot back what they've heard
2: two or three times, and it, it gets kind of frustrating after a while, I would think. Well, this is where lived experience would really help. They incorporated more people with lived experience with cannabis. Remember, like, the U.S. government wouldn't hire anybody who had a history of cannabis use, so, like, for half a century, nobody that knew anything about cannabis was involved mm. in any of these policies. And anybody, uh, like I suspect everybody on this call, anybody who's used cannabis in the past knows that like, you don't use as much as you can, just like alcohol. You don't drink <laughs> as much alcohol as they possibly can. Uh, they drink as much as makes them feel happy and comfortable. And if they drink too much alcohol, they feel awful. Mm-hmm. If I drink more than like two beers, I feel awful. If I were ever to drink like five beers, I'd be like a wreck. I mean, I not, I don't handle alcohol well. And for cannabis, if people smoke more or use, let's just say smoke, but whatever, use more cannabis than they intended to, they have an awful time. People take an edible that's too strong, they're miserable. So people are, cannabis users are usually very careful about how much they consume and how wrong it is, whether it's 5%, 10%, or 20%, doesn't really affect how much they use. It might make them reach that level a little bit quicker. But so I, I think this is sort of a straw man argument personally. Nice. Perfect answer.
1: It was that dog in the background. My dog was just barking as well.
2: Yeah, <laughs> My dog I dog. He's trying his hardest. What he's saying when he's barking is uh, if i could translate he's saying that he too agrees that strong <laughs> <laughs> to cause psychosis so just if you wanted a translation that's the translation
1: yeah i would just like to add that i concur you know <laughs> <laughs> me, well you.
2: if i speak bark language i would tell him that
1: mm-hmm. uh, we have a question here from south city which is interesting when he says our food water and air is full of contaminants now that no doubt affect our biochemistry Do you think this is a reason more people than ever feel the health benefits of the herb
2: well it's hard to say um i mean it's absolutely true that pollution uh you know is is bad for us and on every level mental physical you know in some ways the world's less polluted than it was because we have regulation i mean i honestly think you Mm. know 50 years ago before the environmental protection agency a lot of areas were much more polluted companies just did whatever they they wanted you know so in some ways um, before
1: catalyst converters that, on cars so lead was just pumped into the air all the time that yeah no I, I mean,
2: that, exactly no sadly i have a lot of patients that are from you know latin america and some of the some of them have lead poisoning because they didn't have oh. the same environment and their IQs are like very, very low. They can't even, they can't function as adults. So, mm. but yeah, so aside from the fact of whether we're more or less polluted than we used to be, um, I think the reason more people are experiencing ben- medicinal benefits from cannabis is because people like you guys, like me, like my dad, uh, millions of people have been working hard to demystify it and to destigmatize it and to educate people about the benefits and to you know push back on the government's crazy cra- claims about the harms. I mean, the government has been lying about it for the last half century. I mean, you know, it used to cause breath to grow, whatever, sperm damage, DNA damage, Mm -hmm. your testicles to fall off. I mean, (laughs) we're still dealing with a lot of nonsense, but we're dealing with less nonsense than we used to, and it's a more balanced discussion. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, the legality is that the the criminal penalties are less in many parts of the world. Uh, You know, and in the UK, many parts of the U.S., there's, there's certainly medical access, if not uh, full recreational access now in 22 states in the U.S. So I think that people have better information, less stigma, and more access. And I, I think that's more the reason why, why people are, are deriving more, more benefit. And we're learning more how to use it medically, like we learn over time with every medicine, how better to use it, when not to use it. So I think it just our evolution and knowledge are evolving, and that's why more people are fortunate enough to experience the medical benefits.
1: Yeah, and more yeah. and more people know somebody who uses cannabis as medicine now as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm convinced that's why 94% of Americans now support legal access to medical marijuana. Wow, well, I, I mean,
1: 94%? Wow.
2: Yeah, one poll said 89%, and one poll said 94%. And like, first of all, name anything that 94% of Americans <laughs> say. They don't agree mm-hmm. either- sky is blue. I mean, if, if Donald Trump were to say the sky is yellow, then automatically a third of Americans are going to be walking around saying the sky is yellow. What's wrong with you?
1: <laughs> well, so look how many say, think uh, the world's flat, you know?
2: i <laughs> could say all Americans would agree that the taxes are too high. There you go. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, we have our socialists here that want higher taxes. But, That's right. But pro- but probably That's the rich. Right. <laughs> Four percent would agree but you know and i think part of the reason the number is so high is exactly what you said people know so many people have cancer so many people have pain so mm-hmm. many people have anxiety and insomnia uh i think after a point everybody knows someone who's benefited from medicinal cannabis so I, I i think it's um you know the actual reality of people's experiences can overcome government propaganda given enough time
1: yeah so sure. mm-hmm yeah, do you still suffer any stigma like uh, at work in between your doctor friends? because you you don't work at a specific cannabis clinic, do you?
2: No, well, I you know I I incorporate it into my primary care practice as a general doctor, right. and then I have a private practice. Um, the only I would say the only stigma, you know, and this is really interesting, I think the opinion that different doctors have on it sort of depends on their vantage point. So, for example, the oncologist, the people treating patients with cancer. Who see their patients use it during chemotherapy, so they're able to eat, like my brother Daniel was able to do Mm -hmm. when he was getting therapy, or you know they see that it helps with pain, Um, or the the general doctors see it helping people with pain, with anxiety, with insomnia. I think that they tend to be all or mostly in favor of it. Whereas the pediatric psychiatrists, for example, they see the rare but very tragic and real cases of when cannabis, as I alluded to earlier can can trigger or worsen a psychotic episode and if that's most of what they see even though the cases are rare because they're specialists in this that's what they see Mm -hmm. all day they get a very negative view of cannabis because they sort of generalize to their experience like everybody else does this is how Mm -hmm. our brains work so i would say from some of the psychiatrists um i get some you know some sort of negativity but from the rest of the doctors i think most of them are sort of relieved and supportive and eager just to have some good cannabis education so they could have decent, helpful discussions with their patients, which has always been a a challenge because they haven't been taught anything helpful about cannabis.
1: And have you seen them numbers rise over the last 10, 20 years? I assume there's plenty more doctors now who are in support of cannabis than there was a decade ago, for example. Yeah, no,
2: absolutely. Now, we're talking about medical cannabis. I would say that Two-thirds of doctors
1: are in favor of it, and two-thirds of doctors
2: genuinely believe it has medicinal benefits. Now, two-thirds of doctors, does might not sound like a lot, but doctors are very conservative, and they're
3: mm. the,
2: the, the furthest behind in all segments of our society about cannabis, because they've been subjected to so much nonsense over the last half a century. Um, so we're definitely heading in the right direction. You know, Again, you contract you contrast the two-thirds, 67% of doctors that support medical cannabis with the 94% of patients that support it. It's not, 94% is much higher than 67%, but at the same time, it's much higher than it used to be. So we're definitely heading in the right direction. I mean, you know, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, they still put the words medical marijuana in these derogatory quotation marks, like, (laughs) (laughs) exist, And I think that these people are getting really, no one's listening to them. I mean, a -hmm. lot of people don't tell their psychiatrists about their cannabis use, which I think is very, very dangerous. I think Mm -hmm. of open communication between doctors and patients, Uh, you know, there are drug interactions. There are all kinds of reasons why your doctor needs to know that you're on cannabis. But a lot of this is the fault of the doctors for being sort of dismissive and critical and shutting down the conversation. And I think, the doctors have an obligation, regardless of whether they're pro, anti, neutral about cannabis, couldn't care less about cannabis. They have to provide a climate, an environment where the patients can feel comfortable talking about it. Not just cannabis, all their drug use. I mean, mm. if there are topics that you can't feel comfortable talking about with your doctor, that's, that's very medically dangerous.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. And, and I frequently tell people on the show that in America, you, we have a right to talk to our doctors. About our health issues, including cannabis use with with impunity. It's, it's a, a confidentiality, and I I tell everyone, and I have done it myself. Speak to your doctor about your cannabis use. And make sure that they know that it's in your chart
2: in case something ever happens. Right. The one exception is if you're a pregnant woman because of the laws, they might have to call the, the, the yes. Department of Child and Families, and you could like lose your kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, excellent we have point. Very punitive laws. So generally, again. I'm a huge advocate of open communication between doctors and patients on all drugs. However, if it's going to get you like arrested or get your kid taken away, you might want to, you know, put that advice in context. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I get that. The one thing it did
0: do uh, at my my position, as soon as she found out that I was a cannabis user, she, I don't get as many phone calls to come in for checkups anymore. Well, that's interesting. Um,
2: You know, it's hard to generalize because doctors are, The medical profession is sort of in slow motion collapse. Actually, not that slow motion. Uh, It's really, there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of mortal injury. Doctors are feeling like taken advantage of by the insurance companies and the hospitals. And a lot of them are quitting. And there's a huge uh, physician shortage right now. I mean, I know in my hospital, they can hardly find enough Adult doctors to run the place safely, and you know, a doctors for adults, not adult doctors.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's like, how many kids are doctors in America? <laughs> right, exactly.
2: Uh, but so we're pretty ambitious over here, so would be. <laughs> but, so it might be that your doctor is busy and checked out. But um, I I would be surprised if it had to do with the cannabis because again, most general doctors aren't particularly against cannabis. They and more and more are realizing. I mean, the funniest part the most ironic part about being a medical cannabis doctor and being a general doctor, I do both. And I think it actually makes me, each makes me better at doing the other um, is that, you know, as a general doctor, we spend all day treating pain, insomnia, anxiety, and we don't have that many good tools. Like a lot of the medications for pain are really dangerous. And a lot of the medications for uh, trouble sleeping are really dangerous. And I actually have this, because I certify patients for cannabis, have this extra tool that's plant-based, it's relatively non-toxic, as I mentioned earlier, it's not for everybody, but it actually makes my life a lot easier because I have this tool that patients love that's safe for some of these conditions that are like impossible to treat Mm -hmm. uh, with these other medications. So I think that once doctors start to catch on, that using medical cannabis actually makes your life a lot easier, you've got this extra tool in your toolbox, I think uh, the doctors are all going to start adopting it because it it really, not only does it make things better for patients, you know, and it doesn't work for everybody. As I mentioned, some are not appropriate candidates and others don't have a good reaction to it. You know, there's some people that just get very anxious with any amount of cannabis and they can't Mm -hmm. use it for Mm -hmm. sleep or for pain. But generally speaking, having an extra tool in your toolbox makes your life a lot easier. And given how much doctors are struggling. I predict that in five, 10 years, doctors are going to be huge advocates of this because among all other things being equal, anything that makes your life a very difficult life, being a doctor these days, anything that makes your life easier is something that people are going to adopt.
0: I agree. Mm. Now I will tell you by my orthopedist though, he had a little bit different opinion of the cannabis because he offered me pain medication for, for, uh, for a joint injury. And when I turned him down and said I, I was using a cannabis balm on it, he immediately got extremely interested. He started asking questions. And by the time I left the office, his advice to me was, whatever you're doing, continue it, please. So that was well, pro- that was
2: promising. Well, that, that sort of uh, speaks to the point I just made a, a, a little while ago, which is like doctors, their opinions are at least in part formed by their experiences with patients. And mm-hmm. that doctor is hard enough to know that like, there's no way the cannabis you're using is more dangerous than any opiates he could give you. Mm-hmm. So that's the doctor. He's just saying this is a great option. I mean, you know, I'm sure he also wants to learn more about it. They don't teach us very much about it. But, mm-hmm. you know, it really this goes exactly back. If, you know, an orthopedist sees people using cannabis instead of opiates and not destroying their kidneys with non-steroidals, your ibuprofens, mm-hmm. your naprosins, uh, is an orthopedist that will be in favor of medical cannabis. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, uh, it was interesting, though, because I actually got got
0: to educate him uh, him and his colleagues a little bit, because he came in, uh, doctors walking down the hall, and my doctor turns around and says, hey, this guy's using marijuana on his knee. Come and mean, look at this guy. Exactly, exactly <laughs> how he said it, though. And the doctor turned in and he says, really? Does it get you high? <laughs> really funny. No. No, it's a topical. It doesn't get you high. So I had to explain a little bit to him about what was in it and how it works. It's
2: burnt out. I just had an article come out. You know how doctors take the myth, do no harm. Yeah. I just said the chapters in my book is called Do Be No Harm about <laughs> doctors, uh, medical profession. And it says that, you know, it can really help doctors with this burnout and this moral injury, and this exhaustion that they're all suffering from. Mm. And a lot of doctors go home and like drink themselves to death, mm. which is not a good thing at all. And that maybe cannabis can just be a, a healthier option for people that need something at the end of the day. I mean, in a perfect world, we'd all whatever, eat tofu, do yoga, practice meditation, and no one would need anything at the end of the day. But in reality, after a hard day, most people need something. Mm. And now that they're a legal choice between cannabis and alcohol, whereas before, alcohol was the only choice. I think cannabis, it doesn't have calories, it's less fattening, it's safer. It's, I, I think, a lot more interesting than alcohol. And I think a lot of doctors are gonna be um, using it. And then if they're using it instead of alcohol, they're gonna be, have a much more reality-based opinion on the true harms and benefits, because mm-hmm. it's hard to put all this conflicting information into context. Uh, you know, one person, one authority says one thing, one authority says another thing, and uh, they're completely contradictory, which is part of why I wrote my book, to try to hear each issue from both sides and then talk about the science and then say where I come down on it, right. which, you know, I've been doing this for 50 years. I think I'm hopefully I get it right most of the time. That's but right. I, I I think that it's easier to do that if you've had a lived experience with cannabis, because, mm-hmm. you know, there are certain harms that you just understand better, for example. Like, you know, it can make your short-term memory a little bit fuzzier, right? You remember that you went to a party, you remember who you spoke to, but if you smoke a joint with people, you might not remember every part of every conversation, but, you know, that's- just remember the good
1: bits. Right, exactly.
2: (laughs) We call
0: it stoner brain, that's That's it, yeah.
2: That's been, like, exaggerated. It causes memory loss, and it doesn't- (laughs) It just affects your ability- for a couple hours to consolidate short term memories, and it does that. At the same time, it also helps you live in the moment. It helps you appreciate music, art, sex, mindfulness, connection, spirituality. It, it, there are a lot of things that it enhances, and mm-hmm. you know, you sort of like make a decision when you use cannabis to like de-emphasize certain parts of your brain, like mem- remembering every little detail, and to emphasize other parts of your brain, like appreciating music or living in the moment and connecting with someone or connecting with nature so it's not as much about harms or at least that's how i wrote about it as sort of making a willful choice to emphasize certain types of your brain as a, at the expense of others at the short-term expense with no harm done and every society throughout history people have changed their consciousness um so you know there's a big a lot of judgment and a lot of moralism that i think is is going to diminish as more people themselves have lived experience with cannabis as legalization spreads and as they are better able to put in context all the, all the stuff they hear about it. Mm-hmm.
1: So with your book, was that more directed? At, um, are you trying to get a message relayed to your doctors, to all the doctors in the country as well as patients? Did you focus it on like a medical point of view that you, from your perspective as a doctor?
2: Well, it's for doctors and for patients. It's for anybody who wants to be up to date in the science, and anyone who wants to truly understand the social history of cannabis. I have a whole chapter on the war on cannabis users, which has just been ugly in the U.S. We had twenty million, more than twenty million arrests over the last fifty years, just for possession. Um, And I talk a lot about how the U.S. government spiked the research to only support research into harms and to flat out not fund any research into benefits because they needed to taint and stigmatize cannabis and cannabis users Mm. to wage their war on drugs. So, I mean, with cannabis, as much as any other subject, if not more, the social history and the science are intertwined. So I think, you know, scientists will be interested in this because I go over all the science and what's wrong with the different studies and what's right about other studies. But I think lay people will be interested in it, too, because it's written, you know, for a lay audience. And it talks mostly about, well, a lot about the the way in which the science. I mean, people are really interested in science. I would view it as like half science writing that people are going to be interested in. Because, again, people want to know the benefits. They want to know the harms. They want to hear about the science. And I say the other half is about the social history, which I think anybody with a conscience would be interested in because it's really horrible what we've done to drug users in this
1: country. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And here in the UK as well, all around the world. Oh yeah,
2: no, the UK has done no better. The only mm-hmm. difference is the US was in charge of eighty to ninety percent of worldwide funding for drug research. And during the War on Drugs, countries like the UK and all the other countries went along with us and didn't mm-hmm. fund helpful um, about drug research into the benefits. So, but yeah, the UK has been awful on cannabis. You know, and and they're getting better. But they, what do they do? They legalize in the UK medical, but say general doctors can't prescribe it. You have to be a specialist. Now, Mm -hmm. first of all, prescribing cannabis is not rocket science, like any doctor can do it. Um, And second of all, who knows the patient better than the general doctor? Mm -hmm. Who knows all the other medications the patient's taking and, you know, all the other doctors that the patient's seeing? Who's like the quarterback of the team? I mean, the general doctor is exactly who should be prescribing the medical cannabis. In my Mm -hmm. belief system and the UK got that a hundred percent wrong. There's no reason for it.
1: Yeah. Well it's just to make money for their crony friends. Our government is very corrupt here in the UK. <laughs> yeah, you just try and no, make it look like it isn't, but it is.
2: Well <laughs> you know, we have our share of corruption too. I mean convinced mm-hmm. that a big reason the medical societies, many of them are still against medical cannabis, even though most physicians are in favor of it is because they get so much money from the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, and at least you guys don't have these stupid ads on television all the time for the pharmaceutical industry. Take our product and every, your, all your problems will go away. And, you know, it's just a nightmare that they're allowed to advertise directly to consumers. And I think over the years, they've had a really large impact on the policy of the different medical societies. And mm-hmm. that's pretty corrupt, too. Maybe not as directly corrupt, but it's pretty corrupt in its own right.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a back- big threat to the pharmaceutical company, though, because now... Drop this seed in the soil, and in three months, you'll have all the medicine you need. That's (laughs) really, really a bad pill to swallow for the pharmacy companies. Yeah,
2: no, absolutely. But, you know, to a certain extent, they've taken a – you can't beat them and join them. I mean, what they tried to do in the U.S. is they contributed lavishly to all of the um, efforts to stop legalization in each state, yet they Mm -hmm. were also developing their own cannabis-based medicines. So that right. you wouldn't be able to grow it, you wouldn't be able to buy it at a dispensary. Yet you'd have to buy their super expensive cannabis-based therapy. I think now that legalization is basically out of the bag, we have 22 states that have legalized for adult, more than 40 that have legalized for medical, and it's going well. No one's unlegalizing it. Everybody's really happy with it. Even though the system, the different systems could be improved. You know, it's sort of a work in progress. I think the pharmaceutical companies are starting to take a well, if we can't beat them, let's join them. And they're right. sort of tobacco, alcohol, and pharmaceutical companies are starting to try to populate the boardrooms of the different cannabis companies and sort of take it over. And nobody wants that. We don't want tobacco, alcohol, or pharma in charge of the cannabis industry that we've all worked so hard to get legal. But they're pretty powerful people. And I think um, the cannabis industry is really sort of in a fight for its identity right now, at least in the United States.
1: Yeah, I will find that as well it seems to be there's the big corporate cannabis, which is trying to get started, but the actual cannabis users and people in the cannabis community seem to prefer buying from the mom and pop stores to keep the, uh, you know, the, the growing local and try and support the local growers rather than sort of support these big, uh, big companies that grow hundreds of thousands of plants.
2: Well, absolutely. That's number one. And number two is like, people don't want like Marlboro and Budweiser. They want like craft beer, you Mm -hmm. know, they want, They're going to want like local, interesting, fragrant cannabis. They're not going to want like the lowest common denominator, Mm. which is what big companies come and just like uh, buy up all the little guys and make everything the same.
1: Yeah, it's a shame. And it seems to be legislated. (laughs) So it's easier for these bigger guys because the amount of money you have to pay to get licenses and things like that. It's a shame.
2: No, it's very
1: difficult. It also
2: makes it very difficult for equity to try to steer some of the profits to the new industry, to mm. the little guy who got beat up and arrested and taxed and penalized and sort of you know, got saddled with a criminal record because uh, of the war on cannabis users. A lot of people are really trying to steer the profits of our new industry to the people that have been harmed by the war on drugs and the people that really deserve it. And you know, these big corporations are very good at getting around all the laws we have to help the little guy.
1: Mm -hmm. I was wondering as well, because you're a general doctor, so you have patients come into your office and discuss their general health problems, right? And you diagnose pills for them. It's like, do you have a new patient that comes in and doesn't know that you're Dr. Peter Grinspoon and then asks about cannabis as medicine?
2: (laughs) Absolutely, because uh, I take care of a lot of patients that don't speak English. Only 40 of my patients speak English because um a lot of them are from Latin America. I work at an inner city sort of impoverished clinic. And so I haven't read you know all the you know whatever the the newsletters or the papers or anything I might be cited in.
3: Mm. But
2: um you know patients are very interested in medical cannabis these days. And you know even if it's someone that I don't think is like the best candidate for medical cannabis then there's still the argument that like if they're going to be using cannabis anyways why not have them use legal, safe, regulated cannabis that's tested for heavy metals, lead, mm-hmm. pesticide, fungus, as opposed mm-hmm. to using, you know, stuff they buy in the streets. So I think getting people into the legal system can, can do a lot of harm reduction. Um, you know, even if they're not someone you would necessarily say, this is my top choice for, for someone uh, putting them on cannabis. You know, the, the best case scenario is someone that's like, I'm on opiates. I don't want to be on opiates for my chronic pain can you help me transition to cannabis? You know, that's a great situation where everybody wins.
1: Mm-hmm. Apart from a uh, big farmer, pharma. big farmer. Pharma
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> big <pharma. laughs> but everybody else does,
1: you know, but they've won enough, man. We need to get the balance back. You know, yeah, <laughs> they've, no, they've, they've won big, a lot of the battles over the last 50 years.
2: Yeah. Big pharma is doing just fine. And and believe me, big pharma is not going anywhere. I mean, mm. you know, there, there are a lot of um, treatments that, that cannabis doesn't do that. Big pharma does. I mean, it's not like cannabis is like cornered the market, but it is interesting. You know, there was a study in 2016 from the Journal of Health Economics where, when Colorado legalized recreationally, uh, the Medicare expenses went down across the board for every single medication category that could be treated with cannabis.
3: Wow. So,
2: with recreation instead of waiting to see your doctor and then getting in to see them four months later and then getting an SSRI like Prozac and then you have to wait another month to see if it helps you, if your insurance even pays for it. People are just getting cannabis and treating their anxiety and depression or their nausea or their backache or their sexual problems or their sleep problems with cannabis on their own. I mean, the insurance companies save so much money uh, with legalization of cannabis, So. You know, a that helps explain, as we talked about before, why pharma hasn't been a huge fan of cannabis legalization. You know, big pharma's seen the writing on the wall. But b, it also says that like the insurance companies really need to cover medical cannabis. They're saving billions of dollars by the fact that people are treating themselves with cannabis instead of all these pills. So why shouldn't they pay for part of the cost of the cannabis?
1: Mm-hmm. It's a it's a strange system we have there in the USA compared to the UK. Because we have the NHS, as you probably know, but uh, the the whole legalized cannabis medicine thing, you have to go to see a specialist consultant, like you said, you can't get it from your normal doctor. You have to go speak to a a specialist, a consultant, pay them money, and then you have to pay for your cannabis as well on top of that. So it's pretty expensive for people in the UK when we used to having free to the point of use medicine. You know.
2: Yeah. No. Absolutely. And you know that's going to change too. It's got to change in this country as well. You know, poor people have been harmed by the war on cannabis. It can't just be a treatment for the for the wealthy. I mean, I've had several patients that say, I'm doing much better on the cannabis than I was on the opiate, but the right. opiate only cost me a dollar a month on my health insurance. Mm-hmm, it cost me mm-hmm. $50 a month. I can't afford it, so I'm going to go back in the opiates. And that's that's like a loss for everybody.
1: Wow. You know? Yeah, that's it.
2: I've had that happen many times. And again, the insurance companies are making out like, bandits uh with people Mm. using medical cannabis, and i I pretty soon we're gonna succeed i hope in getting them on the hook for paying for some of it i mean in canada they are starting to pay for the medical cannabis in some provinces and they actually give their veterans a, a certain supply of medical cannabis to use every day i don't know and in the u.s like until recently the doctors weren't even allowed to talk to the veterans about medical cannabis and now they're not allowed to certify people but they're at least allowed to discuss it which is a little bit better but i just think we could be doing a lot better for patients with this
1: yeah what do you think influences the government to do the things that they're doing right now like well, like making up that rule there that doctors are not allowed to speak to the veterans about cannabis who made up that rule and why do you think they made that rule up
2: well that was a hangover from the war on drugs again The U.S. government needed cannabis to be stigmatized and sort of vilified. So they couldn't run a war on drugs just with like cocaine and heroin. There weren't enough people. They needed a whole, you know, army to fight a war against, even though it was just an army of like normal people trying to treat themselves. So and what's changing the rules for the better is popular opinion. I mean, for example, look at Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a dinosaur on cannabis. But there's so much pressure, both in the people that work for Biden and the American public to be more reasonable on cannabis, that he's under a lot of pressure to make better choices. So I actually think the evolving uh, government position on cannabis, the improving government position is sort of, in an odd way, an example of democracy in action. I mean, wouldn't you guys sort of say that for the UK? I mean, they're not, the, the politicians are not changing the cannabis laws they're better than they used to be right now there's some access to medical cannabis yeah, not you,
1: stuff- you can see that the way that they have done it has only happened because it influenced it it, it benefits them in some way they'll have some friends who work in a particular company that are going to make profit that they can then filter down to the politicians it's really corrupt here. it's like it's it doesn't seem that way because we're you know we're a, a quote-unquote democratic country but it definitely doesn't feel that way right now. The last three prime ministers we've had were put there by the party and wasn't uh, wasn't elected in by the people. And
2: well, it sounds like you guys have progress to be made, just like we have progress oh, to be made. Yeah, uh, uh, our, our democracy isn't doing so great at the moment either. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Both countries are suffering. but gosh, it's bad times, man. But it. It just seems like the government only do things here if it's in their best interests. And right now they have friends in the pharmaceutical companies who are opening up greenhouses and you know uh, exporting medical cannabis. But it um, only benefits them. Yeah, well, that's that's disappointing to hear. I mean, I'm not surprised, mm-hmm. but disappointing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So whether it will be legalized for recreational use in the UK anytime soon, I don't know. I'm skeptical. I don't think uh, we've, we've got much bigger problems to be dealing with than that right now you know just right. the government's broken
2: it gets less illegal for recreational uses when medical gets legalized is what i i understand police mm-hmm. don't prioritize it as much the judges don't prioritize it as mm-hmm. much i, I think it, it still gets better even if yeah, it's,
1: it's definitely getting softer in, in that aspect you know people ain't bothered by it so much but it, there's still a, like a, a monkey. Did was it like eighty percent of people in the UK still don't know that it's legal for medical was, use?
0: Yeah, the article last week was eighty-four percent of the people in the UK do not realize that they can they can access medical cannabis. Mm-hmm. That's crazy numbers.
2: It's, that's that's truly amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. it is fought at, at you know both sides uh, so aggressively here. I, I don't think there are very many people here that don't know that because mm. in the states in every single state we've had these like vicious fights where both sides brandish their most, most extreme arguments. And the legalization wins eventually, if not right away. But uh, you know, people get subjected to so much advertising and so much debate. Uh, It's amazing that 84% of people don't know that that's, that's truly astounding.
1: So it makes me want to just go to my city center sometimes and get a stall and just stand there with like a holding my arms up with a sign saying, you know you can get cannabis legally for medicine in the UK. Ask me how. You know <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's really funny. That's I mean it it just it boggles the mind because I, again in the US like um, people have really fought for this and there are mm-hmm. people have very strong opinions on one side or the other. There there aren't very many people that don't care about cannabis. People care mm-hmm. very one way or the other, and they they've been very invested in this. So mm-hmm. it's to hear the way the way the situation is in other
1: countries yeah we, we need more doctors like you that's what we need well
2: hopefully my book will have an impact it'll be yeah. out there I think out on June 1st in the UK but people can can buy it on Amazon um, and just get it shipped Sweet. and uh I, I you know hopefully it'll have it you know it really does go over the benefits and you know I think once people start hearing about the benefits and they say you know I have trouble sleeping do I want to be on this like heavy-duty hypnotic medication that makes me groggy the next day and also might contribute to dementia? Or or do you want to use a little bit of CBD with a little bit of THC mixed in, maybe with a tincture under your tongue, and gently fall asleep and wake up feeling good? I think people, once they start hearing about the benefits, they're going to adapt it pretty quickly. That's usually Mm. what happens.
1: So, What do you think about um, the, the psilocybin is being used now for some treatments for depression? and anxiety in different parts of the USA. What is your take on that? Are, well, or are I'm you really, on cannabis?
2: Yeah, I'm really excited about the potential. And some of the early research has been so promising. I mean, like, you know, not only does it help, it seems to sort of cure some people um, mm-hmm. at least for like maybe six months or so. And furthermore, uh, it helps people who have what's called treatment-resistant depression. Like they failed like three traditional psychiatric medications And then you take psilocybin and you feel better. I mean, it's really, really amazing. It also helps people deal with their trauma and can help people with addiction. I mean, the initial evidence is really, really intriguing. Um, You know, just a side note, my my father, who was a, a huge, legendary cannabis specialist at Harvard for his entire career, he also wrote a book in 1979 about psychedelics and how we need to use them in psychiatry. Uh, It was called Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, just like my dad's book on marijuana was called Marijuana Reconsidered. And, um, you know, he was calling from the rooftops in 1979 for the use of psilocybin and and MDMA and other psychedelics in psychiatry. And he got in such hot water at Harvard. I mean, they still haven't promoted him uh, to full professor, even though he had 11 books and 180 scientific papers. It's like 10 times as much as you need to get promoted And uh, it was because they didn't like his work in psychedelics. But ironically, now my hospital at Harvard, Mass General, has a huge center for the study of psychedelic medicines 40 years later. So it's amazing how ahead of the times my dad was. And it's also how persecuted he got for it. And to their credit, at least the psychiatrists grow and change on this issue. And now 75% of them are in favor of it. But it's really amazing how times change. You could come out with an opinion – and be a heretic, and you could come out with the same opinion forty years later, and you could be like a hero. Mm.
1: That's it, man. He, he was so far away, so far <laughs> ahead of his time. There, back in seventy-one, that's more than fifty years ago. And he, man, he he definitely led the way in many many ways. Didn't he? It was so cool, man. I had no yeah, idea about I, the psychedelic thing. That's cool.
2: Yeah, no, if only we listened to him, we'd be forty years further along in all this research. Mm. And not to mention all the people that got arrested and stuff
1: like that. I wouldn't listen to him. (laughs) It's them politicians.
2: I listened. I was only 13, though, so there wasn't much I could do.
1: (laughs) Wow.
0: I hear that. Must have been good times, man. Doctor, you had uh, mentioned something earlier on, if you don't mind. I'd like to circle back to it. You had had mentioned that when uh, cannabis goes recreational in a lot of these states, that prescriptions go way down because people just use that instead. Do you find that this self-medication is a problem or is this a good thing?
2: Well, if they're genuinely, well, it is a complicated question. It depends what they're self-medicating. If okay. they're self-medicating their trouble sleeping and they're using cannabis instead of something more dangerous, that's a good thing. If And, you know, they're not someone who has psychosis, who's pregnant, who's breastfeeding. They're not a teenager. They don't use it before driving. There aren't. They're not in any of the categories of like, People who shouldn't necessarily be using cannabis, then I think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. If they're self medicating their schizophrenia, it's a disaster if they're under the mistaken belief that it'll somehow make your schizophrenia better rather than worse. Or, or a very common one is that people, you know, cannabis is wonderful for cancer related symptoms. If you have pain, weight loss, anxiety, insomnia, and it's great for chemotherapy related symptoms. If you have nausea, you can't keep food down. That's what really helped my brother when he was, you know, in his, in his teen years, the chemotherapy was really getting to him, and cannabis enabled him to maintain his weight. But then if people are self-treating the actual cancer, I think that's really dangerous because while well, there have been very, very intriguing studies showing that different components of cannabis kill cancer cells in the, in the, in the Petri dish, Mm-hmm. Or maybe in an, in an animal study. There haven't been any studies yet that have shown that the, the cannabis treats cancer in humans. Yeah. So if you have cancer, you go to an oncologist, you go to a cancer specialist, and then you use cannabis as an adjunct for the treatments, um, an adjunct to tolerate the treatment or to tolerate the symptoms, but you don't use a cannabis to self-treat your cancer. And the US, there's a whole bunch of people that are huge advocates of this thing called Rick Simpson oil, which I'm sure both Mm of you guys have heard of, which they they claim cures cancer. Now, it may eventually turn out to be true that it cures cancer, but we don't know that. And if you're using Rick Simpson oil instead of regular chemotherapy, which with a lot of cancers is like 90 to 100% effective, Mm -hmm. you're putting a lot of people at risk. So I think it can be very dangerous depending on – what they're treating and what else they're using to not treat whatever they're treating. If hmm. they're using cancer,
1: well, so we have a listener who was diagnosed with lung cancer like uh, maybe 18 months ago, uh, two years it's been a while. Uh, but he, he's using Rick Simpson's oil for, uh, to treat his cancer. Being in the UK, it's difficult to get doctor appointments and things, and uh, especially over the whole COVID thing. Smoke, everybody, smoke again. Uh- <laughs> yeah, are
2: they, I hope they're yeah. at least five. Following- I mean, but sometimes cancer gets better by itself. That's the other thing that mm. makes it common. So, you know, to really tell, you'd have to do a study where you gave one group nothing, one group Rick Simpson oil, and one group uh, regular chemotherapy. But that wouldn't be an ethical study to do. Mm-hmm. Just like we talked about before, like it's unethical to study on pregnant women. It's unethical to do that kind of study because you can't withhold treatment for someone that you know works like Mm -hmm. chemotherapy for lung cancer so again it could be the rick simpson oil it could be the cancer is just slow growing some people have cancer for 10 years and it just sits there uh it could be that it your our immune systems naturally fight back against a certain percentage of cancers or um it could be that he's making a really 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 bad choice and you know it'd be very hard to study this
1: Mm -hmm. like you say given treatment to different people you know different oh, treatment to different people it's, yeah. it's not it's not uh morally right is it
2: yeah not to with i mean you know especially with lung cancer like when i was in medical school 25 years ago if someone was diagnosed with lung cancer they'd often usually be dead within a year or two
3: mm-hmm.
2: now i have patients because of chemotherapy not because of rick simpson oil because of chemotherapy who have had lung cancer for like 20 years and they're fine they they, they you just we can treat it a lot of the time wow. so you know we always have to go with like the proven treatment if it's something as serious as cancer. Hmm. If it's a symptom, say they have a bad headache, sure, try cannabis for your headache. I use cannabis for a ton of patients who have headaches. And then if the cannabis doesn't help the headache, we'll use something else. Nothing is lost because it's not like a deadly disease. It's a symptom.
3: Mm-hmm. So I
2: think like you can be use cannabis for any symptoms you want, but if it's like a life-threatening disease. And you can certainly use cannabis, but it's very tricky morally and ethically to use cannabis instead of something that we have really good data that works. You just mm-hmm. have to be very careful. This is a this is an area where I take the cannabis supporters uh, to task a little bit, or mm-hmm, well, the mm-hmm. the ones that believe in Rick Simpson oil. Now, um, again, I overall in the book I probably take the cannabis opponents to task probably three times as much. But you know, I try to be honest, and 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 yeah, if I think true. either side gets it right. I'll say that. And if I think either side gets it wrong, I'm happy to say that
1: as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely controversial. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And and some people very strongly believe in Rick Simpson oil. And there are people that I know and like and think are super smart and credible that have told me, I treated my cancer with Rick Simpson oil and it went away. So it's not like I've never met people Mm -hmm. that I believe and care about and respect that have told me that. I'm just approaching it more from the point of view of like a, a medical scientist.
1: Yeah, that's it as a scientist. Like you need to see firm evidence, like and reliable evidence as well. No like blind studies and shit like that. And, and like doing those blind studies are not ethical, really. So it's difficult right, to do. Exactly.
2: Especially if it's life-threatening. Again, mm-hmm. if it's just a symptom, like yeah. back sure, try whatever you want. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. You know, you're not gonna die as long as the treatment mm-hmm. isn't toxic and cannabis isn't. A very toxic treatment but if it's a life-threatening disease you know i think he's better off going with the evidence
1: yeah it's interesting i mean because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence when it comes to this right like you know people who have used uh, rick simpson oil and their cannabis has gone and we know people as well and you see stories about it online all the time as well
2: right but that's so. something that my dad writes about in his 1993 book um marijuana the Forbidden Medicine. Mm-hmm. It's called Anecdotal fan- fallacy. Yeah, uh the problem with anecdotes because the person who uses Rick Simpson oil and lives, you're going to hear about
3: mm-hmm. the hundred mm.
2: people who used Rick Simpson oil and died. Yeah, you don't hear because they're dead. So there's this sort of bias in terms of like when these things work or appear to work, they seem to be more effective than they are because you never hear about all the cases. Or they don't work. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, definitely. Absolutely, makes confirmation bias. Yeah, humans are made to recognize patterns, so we remember them, uh, them things there as a pattern, and it's also an event rather than a non-event. So we're more exactly. likely to remember that as well. Right, yeah, we so Remember they, the miracles more than the, the failures. You know?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. We don't even know about the failures because the person uneventfully died. Like we just yeah. never heard of. Them. Mm-hmm. Whereas right. the one person who it might have been the Rick Simpson oil. Or it could have been just like their immune system shut down the cancer because when we get cancer, our immune systems fight against it. I wouldn't rely on just their immune system, but they do try to stop it. It could be that they were lucky and they had a good immune system or that the cancer was susceptible. So we hear these stories and people believe them. And then you're right, it's confirmation bias. If you think cannabis can help cancer and then you meet five people and they're like, yeah, I had a lung cancer, I had skin cancer, I used Rick Simpson oil, it went away, you're going to get your beliefs confirmed.
0: Mm. so i would also kind of give you a little bit of a placebo effect there too if you believe it's going to work your body's might might
2: fight a little bit harder well that's true too that's very complicated but i actually believe that is the case the mind and the body are definitely connected but again i wouldn't buy on that
0: (laughs) no 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 no.
1: (laughs) so are you uh using cannabis now do you smoke or do you consume
2: well i've certainly uh consumed plenty in the past and (laughs) um You know, I, I don't like to talk about the exact present moment, like this second, because I don't want to get in trouble. I, I But I do admit the past use. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's helped me a lot. I mean, it, it's helped me in so many. I, read, I have a whole chapter in my book, Seeing Through the Smoke, about how it helps people with their lifestyle. I talk about all the harms, talk about all the benefits. but then I talk a lot about how it helps people with their sexuality, their spirituality, their creativity, their appreciation of other people, of music and art. Uh, the way it helps give them insight. And I talk a lot about how it's helped me over the years become a more friendly and humble person and just have a lot of insight into how I can be a better person. And, and also I talk a lot about how it helped my migraines when I had very bad migraines. Mm. And I finally talk about how, um, well, not finally, I talk about how it helped me with my opiate addiction, because I think cannabis is very effective for opiate withdrawal symptoms. And 15 years ago I had a very vicious addiction to opiate painkillers that's
1: right that's what what your first book is about right yeah
2: yeah exactly and then finally i talk about it helps my writing like i i'm a pretty good writer without cannabis but i'm a much funnier and more creative writer if i've just had a little bit you know (laughs) not if i smoked a whole joint but if i've had like a puff i write my party's so much smoother, clearer, uh, poetic, and funny. So yeah. definitely, I, I'm a very mediocre writer without it. It definitely helps me a lot. So, yeah. I, there just are a little oil. bit of
1: oil for the cogs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> As the it, cogs it, stick away in the mind, <sighs> stick that bit of oil, you know?
2: Honestly, the way I described it is that, like, there's definitely, like, a certain part of my brain that I just don't have access to unless I've used a little <laughs> bit of cancer. And I've never used large doses. It just takes a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I just have access to like more interesting and creative ideas. I I, I quote a lot of other people too. It's not just me. I talk about Carl Sagan, the astronomer that was best friends with my dad. And he talks a lot about how it helps his creative process. Mm -hmm. So I quoted him a lot. And the way he describes it, which goes back to what we were talking about before, like it might – you know, make your immediate short term memory a little bit worse, but it helps other brain functions. He Mm. talks about how like when the sun's out, you can't see the stars and then the sun goes away and the stars have been there all along, but they were just obscured by the sun. And he thinks cannabis, he postulates in his book, The Dragons of Eden, which won a Pulitzer Prize in the 1970s, the cannabis just makes it so that one part of your brain can function a lot better because it's not inhibited by the other part of your brain. And that's why it does help people with insight and creativity and spirituality. Um, And I'm, I'm a full believer in that. So yeah, mm-hmm. I found it very, very helpful, Uh, you know, the times I've used it. and And again, this goes back to another thing we talked about, which is like when someone has lived experience with cannabis, they can sort of put into context all of this conflicting information about it. Whereas these cannabis, quote unquote, experts that have never used it, and it never like mm-hmm. been around people that use it at parties and stuff. How would they know what's true and what's not true? They'd have no idea. It's all, all speculative. It's all like inferential. Mm-hmm. It's all. And then when you you can pick whatever studies and whatever narratives you want, and you could you could build a very uh, anti uh, point of view on cannabis, or you could build a very pro point of view on cannabis. But how would you really know how to put all of that into context if you've never used cannabis and you haven't been part of a community? That uses cannabis so that they they have you have context for what you're reading
1: mm-hmm. i get it yeah I mean, you see uh, a lot of sorry monkey but i was
0: going to ask uh yeah you had mentioned earlier some uh, something about the uh, physicians possibly benefiting from using cannabis as opposed to alcohol for relaxation does the ama actually have a stance on physicians' recreational leisure use of cannabis
2: they're against it. And what, what really the enforcement is that the medical boards are, are really against it. They're like hysterical about cannabis. Um, wow. I read a lot about that in my book. I mean, cause I used to work for a group that helped physicians who were addicted. Uh, mm-hmm. once I, opened my addiction, they, the state uh, body that helps physicians invited me to be one of the doctors that helps other doctors with addiction. And I, I'd be like, let's get this doctor some medical marijuana I can really help them. And they treat me like I was a heretic. Like, what are you talking about? Doctors can't use cannabis. They even have made, I read a lot about this in my book, they've made doctors go to rehab for admitting to occasional cannabis use in a state where it's legal when the doctor was on the weekend wasn't even working. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous how persecuted Mm -hmm. physicians are in cannabis. And again, I think not only should they not be persecuted because that's not ethical, but I also think it might really, really help them with the moral injury and the dispiritedness and the, and the burnout that, that we're all suffering from.
0: Wow. With that kind of attitude, I now understand why my doctor gets a little bit jumpy when I start mentioning the
2: word cannabis. (laughs) Yeah. why they can help them. And again, the more the doctors see the patients benefiting, like why should doctors not have the same benefit? Like we are people too. We take care of everybody else's problems. We have these like really crappy working conditions. We have Mm. the highest, suicide rate believe it or not of any profession there is
1: um mm-hmm.
2: why should we be denied these things like medicinal cannabis that really helps people and gets people off more dangerous drugs it's completely unethical to deny doctors that benefit
1: it is for sure I mean, and you guys deserve it as well you know you save people's well, lives every day if anybody deserves it it's be the doctors
2: well that's what i think and you know like An example is like when I was into opiates, you know, suboxone, buprenorphine, it's like methadone. That's what we traditionally give people who are addicted to opiates so that they don't overdose. Hmm. You know, uh, suboxone causes a 50 to 80% reduction in death from overdose. That's a really big deal, but it isn't offered to doctors because they say, oh, it's impairing. We don't want to give this to doctors, but you know, if the doctor is dead, they're not going to be very effective. And furthermore, Doctors are allowed to take alcohol, gabapentin, Valium. You know, we're allowed to use muscle relaxants, antihistamines, antidepressants. Since when is the one treatment for opiate addiction that saves lives too, quote unquote, impairing for physicians? There's no data about that whatsoever. It's just a question of the medical boards having ignorance and stigma about addiction, especially as it relates to doctors. And I think the same exact thing is going on with medical cannabis it'll be really interesting to see if they accept psychedelics for doctors because mm. psychedelics are less controversial than cannabis is i have three different a three page long discussion in my book of why the psychiatrists have been so anti-cannabis but now they're so in favor of psychedelics you know with cannabis they'd be saying to patients for the last half a century oh golly this is illegal we can't do that and with psychedelics, the psychiatrists are like, oh, don't worry about the man. Let's take <laughs> some acid. Let's just do some therapy. It's just such a double standard. It's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see if the medical boards let doctors benefit from medical psychedelics. Mm-hmm. I suspect that they are. They're going to be complete hypocrites, and they're going to stay against medical cannabis, but they're going to allow psychedelics, which would be a good thing to allow psychedelics, but they shouldn't be so negative on medical cannabis.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right, man. Yeah, uh, what state was it, Marky? Can you remember the the state which had legalized um, like ketamine and psilocybin in, in Oh yeah, really? was it
2: Oregon or Washington? It's definitely Colorado recently legalized it
1: too. Yeah, that's. I think it was in Colorado. Yeah, he was from Colorado. Yeah, that was very recent. Daniel McQueen, but
2: Oregon did as well. Interestingly, of all places, Australia just legalized MDMA. And so- <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah is really conservative on drugs and mm. they were the first country to really legalize it for medical uses is pretty interesting mm-hmm.
1: very cool man so you've mentioned a couple of times how doctors are, are worked to do hard and they have burnout and you've been writing a book and you're a, a general doctor and you work in a hospital you're a lecturer at, at the at Harvard Medical School you do so much how do you stop from getting burned out what do you do for fun like you know
2: Well, first of all, I'm high energy. Second of all, I love this work. I don't Mm -hmm. love the doc part, but I love the cannabis, the psychedelics, the speaking, the writing. So I really get energized by the work. But for Mm -hmm. fun, I love being out in nature. I love going for walks. Uh, I love hanging out with people, going to parties or having a party here. We had a raging party on Saturday night on 422 for my book. It was pretty cool. Um, Yeah, and and I'm very close to my family. I loved hanging out with them. Uh, and I like to travel. I haven't been able to do that recently, but I love to travel. I used to travel a lot. So I'm a big believer in fun. And uh, But I have to really like the work that I'm doing right now because I feel like it makes a difference. And, you mm. know, that's the real feeling.
1: Yeah, there's not many doctors doing this, what you're doing now. Do you know of any? Do you have friends who you, which you can, can communicate yeah, with about all this stuff?
2: I work with some really, really cool doctors that uh, spend a lot of time fighting racism, fighting poverty, Fighting addiction, fighting stigma, fighting gun violence, which we have a lot more of than you guys do. I mean, it's crazy how much gun violence we have here. So I'm fortunate enough to work with a lot of very uh, progressive and socially minded doctors. You know, mm. uh, very, very few of them work on cannabis. I, I have a bunch of doctor friends that work on cannabis, but I would say most of my doctor friends work on one, um, not that all my friends are doctors, but a lot of friends in the cannabis community, but of my my doctor friends, I'd say a lot of them are really, really, really dedicated to one critically important cause or another. I have a friend that just started devoting half of her time to fighting climate change. I mean, that's really cool. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, man, it's good to stay busy. And especially if you're interested in the topic as well, then you don't really need much motivation when you love doing what you do.
2: Yeah. And, you know, as long as you're having enough fun, you don't have to have Mm -hmm. fun all the time. Like there's important stuff to do. A lot of people need a lot of help, but you yeah, our work not not in great shape right now. So I'm I'm really glad, for example, that this doctor I work with is is working on educating other doctors on climate change and helping hospitals use less energy so that you know we burn less carbon. I think it's really cool when doctors mm. do all this other stuff.
1: Nice. So with your book, you said it's not coming to the UK until June, but uh, we, we do have lots of listeners in the States and Canada as well. Is it in Canada yet?
2: Yep. In Canada. And cool. I think you can get it in the UK just through American Amazon. Yeah. But I think it will be full blown out in the UK um, in another month.
1: Sweet. So would you recommend that we, because we've had Dr. Bonnie Goldstein on, this, on the show before, and she uh, wrote uh, Cannabis is Medicine. And she says, it's a good idea when you buy that book to buy two so you can have one and you can hand one to your doctor. Is that something you'd recommend?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, again, I go through all the harms. I go through all the benefits. I talk about the science from both sides, not even from the pro or the anti side. I say this is, you take any issue. You take insomnia. I say this is what the anti people say. This is what the pro people say. This is what all the studies are. This is the problems of the studies. These are the studies that are good. And this is a reasonable conclusion that we could all agree with. So I absolutely think that this book would be incredibly helpful for doctors as well as patients, and I'm hoping it'll help doctors and patients communicate better. I'm, it also talks a lot about the endocannabinoid system, which is the whole, which you guys know is the whole um, neurotransmitter system, system of receptors and neurotransmitters that through which cannabis works its effects on our body. And unfortunately, the endocannabinoid system is only, believe it or not, taught in 13% of medical schools in the US. Mm -hmm. I mean, crazy. The endocannabinoid system is involved in everything and keeping the body in balance. And even if you're the most anti-cannabis physician on the planet, you should want to know about the endocannabinoid system because you can't understand the harms or the benefits without understanding that. So I, I talk a lot about the endocannabinoid system as well. And, um, and I also have a lot of tips for using cannabis more safely if you're a cannabis user, which I think doctors and patients will be interested in, given that there's so many cannabis users, mm-hmm. uh, across the world, you know, for example, we don't recommend smoking it. It depends how much you smoke it. Like once a week, isn't going to hurt you just like smoking one cigarette a week doesn't hurt you. But if you smoke eight times a day, that, that can't be good for your lungs. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though cannabis has never been associated with POPD or lung cancer that still has a lot of combustion products so I say you know if you use it every day why don't use a dryer vaporizer where you're just heating it you're not burning it and you're not getting into combustion products and mm-hmm. I talk about using you know uh, cannabis that has been regulated it's safer to go through the legal system because you know it doesn't have pesticides or heavy metals or fungus I mean it, the, the system isn't airtight but it's always safer to get something that's this regulated than that's not regulated and, and and talk a lot about the dosage you know mm-hmm. people who have been using cannabis for a long time know how to use it but if you're new to cannabis particularly if you're older you're like 70 or 80 or 90 years old you really do want to start low and go slow you don't want to start with a 50 milligram brownie and freak mm-hmm. out you want to like start with a couple milligrams and and take your time and work your way up so that you don't have a bad reaction so there's some really, really important common sense and simple common sense ways to make cannabis use a lot safer that, that doctors just don't know about because they haven't been having these discussions because they've either been excluded from the discussions because patients don't trust them as resources or they've shut down the discussions because they're insecure and didn't have much to add to the discussion. So it's easier to, you know, unfortunately to just shut down a discussion than to say, I don't know, mm. I don't know where, my favorite words as a doctor. As long as somebody knows, and I can help them find the patient, find out who does know the specialist, that's fine. But a lot of doctors have a, a really big problem with the humility thing. And I think it, it really does give them a lot of information that they can mm-hmm. use to have comfortable and productive discussions with patients, which is what it what it's all about at the end of the day.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, man. What do you think about the – because GPT has been in the news a lot recently, <laughs> and we've spoke about it many times. Do you think that's going to take place of doctors eventually or a system like it where you can just well, ask? Well, first
2: of all, my wife's not listening because she's a data scientist and uh, she um, actually does this stuff for a living. She's at Harvard cool. too. Wow. And so he says that when I talk about artificial intelligence, I sound like an idiot. So uh, <laughs> i listening to this conversation. um, You know, what I read is that, that, um, that uh, artificial intelligence isn't going to replace doctors. It's just going to, replace doctors that don't understand artificial intelligence Mm. because it's like an adjunct, like, you know, the radiologist will be looking at for cancers when they're looking at the mammograms or the colonoscopies, but then they'll also have the computer do it because they have a different algorithm Mm -hmm. and they might pick up different cancers. So any doctor that says, I refuse to learn about this and I'm not going to grow and change my knowledge or my skills in response to this fundamental change in how humans are, are, you know, processing information, they're going to be the doctors to get replaced. But mm. I don't think AI is ever going to fully replace doctors because, well, first of all, good luck listening to people's problems all day. If they want my job, if the computer <laughs> they can have it. I will literally gift wrap it for them. But, you know, in a serious note, there really is just like a, a human component. Like sometimes the patient is saying my back hurts. But you, after being a doctor for a quarter century, you realize that it's not their back that's hurting, it's something they're distressed about. And then you dig into it and you found out that like their husband's been beating them up. And like right.
3: mm. computers
2: to be able to figure that out. I mean, honestly, we go mm. on Instagram sometimes, which isn't scientific, but it truly is how things work when you're dealing with people. And I don't think the computers are ever going to get this. So I think that there's great promise and they're going to make medicine a lot better. But I also think that artificial intelligence is never going to replace... Um, doctors, especially mm-hmm. the ones that are like uh, open to learning and working with it, uh, because there are things that only just like there are things that computers can do a lot better, there are things that humans, at least at this point, can do a lot better.
1: And I suppose patients are always going to feel more comfortable with a proper doctor.
2: Uh, I would <laughs> joke and say, depending on the doctor, but generally, uh, <laughs> I'd say so. Yeah. Uh, I, I do have to get run. I noticed it's four twenty. 20. I do have to get running, running in a couple of minutes. So I just wonder if you guys have any, a couple last questions. Cause no, just, I, um,
1: you know, thank you for coming to join us, man. We don't want to keep you on. don't want to make you rush off and things like that. We've already kept you here for long enough. And we really appreciate you coming out again to come and talk to us about your book and everything. Just having a general chit chat, really. Thank you very much for joining us, doctor. We appreciate oh, it. Oh,
2: it is. It is my, I love you guys. And it's my pleasure. And I'd be happy to come back on the show. I always have so much fun talking to you guys and you have the best
1: questions so i want <laughs> thanks man we appreciate it thank you <laughs> yeah i want really to enjoy it we enjoy your, your information doc so much
2: well thanks for saying that and again thank you for having me and uh you know i'd love to hear what you guys think about the book
1: yes definitely we can't wait to read it we've already got some listeners who have already got it but uh just for the rest of them who don't where can they buy your book where can they find it
2: Well, in the US and in Canada, there's like online, you can get it, whatever Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, it should be in most bookstores in the US and in Canada. It won't necessarily be in like the small bookstore in like rural Ontario, but it's in all the major bookstores. And then again, online, they can get it. And then in Europe, it's going to be available. Well, certainly in the UK on June 1st. And again, they could also get it through Amazon. So it's easy to get you know it's again it, it depends a little bit where you are but it's going to be a pretty pretty accessible book
1: awesome But well, yes thank you again for coming to join us then doctor we'll let you go and do your thing and again we appreciate it massively whenever you want to come back just let us know and we'll get it on the calendar you're always welcome to join us
2: all right thank you so much and you guys have a great rest of your day yes Thanks. you too
1: doctor thank you very much
2: thank you Doc. Okay, Goodbye. bye bye Goodbye.
1: So there we go everybody that was the interview with dr peter grinspoon talking about his new book seeing through the smoke now if you go to amazon or any good bookstore especially in the usa or canada you should be able to find this book so buy it check it out and as he said maybe buy two copies so you can have one and you can hand one on to your doctor or health professional you know the more we can get the medical professionals informed about cannabis the better because many of them just don't know about it and maybe it just takes the patients to inform them so they can learn new things but over time i think things will get better and the medical profession will be using cannabis more often great interview and i enjoyed speaking to dr peter Grinspoon again as we always do and hopefully he'll be back in the near future to talk some more about cannabis and the medical profession being a doctor and all those kind of things i hope you enjoyed this interview share it if you can but of course no pressure but uh, thanks for being here thanks for downloading the episode i hope you enjoyed it and i hope to catch you on friday for the next one when we talk about cannabis history so we'll see you then have a good week stay high stay safe we'll catch you on the next one goodbye